Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. My name's Steve Anderson and today we have another special edition discovering musical hidden gems, this time from that incredible decade that gave us Britney, Sex and City and Friends. And here to celebrate the 90s are two of my incredible friends, legend of broadcasting and Vero tastemaker, Larry Flick, and music blog extraordinaire from Teasers and Dares, Lee Bennett. Hello boys, how are we today? Howdy. Good. Doing really well. Yeah. yeah, we're talking on a reasonably warm, sunny day, but not kind of crazy sunny uh, as it was before. Um, Lee and I are in, in, in England. Larry is in glorious Wales. Um, where it is raining. Where it is now raining, which means yeah. that means you now mean, it means you know you're in Wales when it's raining. Really, it doesn't hasn't really felt like Wales when it doesn't rain. So um, yeah, we had some lovely comments about the last couple that we did of these. So we thought we'd move it on after the 80s to the 90s. Um, Lee being the, the youngest of our little group here, I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's come out the way it did. <laughs> I mean, he really is. It's not a joke. And I'm the oldest, so it's all right. Yeah, that's fine. But he is. He is the he's the pup of this little group. Um, oh, my word. I mean, so the beginning <laughs> of the 90s, I mean, you were, were you, where were you? What were you, were you? So uh, early 90s was GCSEs, then A-levels. Uh, then I decided to go and live in Australia for a year. So I always say I lost a musical year to some degree because that was kind of like the early days of the internet. So um, back then, everything wasn't released internationally all at the same time. So when I got to Australia and was there for a year, things that were coming out were kind of stuff that we'd already had in England. Mm -hmm. So then when I came home a year later, it was like I felt like I, I kind of lost a bit of a year. So every now and again, I realised there's a song that I kind of missed from this sort of blank period. Um, but at the same time, I found loads of good Aussie stuff while I was out there. So that was nice. So And then university. So lots of education in all senses, I suppose, was what the 90s was for me. And where did we find you at the beginning of the 90s, Larry? I mean, I know where I physically found um, you because <laughs> that's probably. <laughs> but um, where where were you? Well, in, in, where yeah. were you? I well, I, yeah, I was born and raised in New York, so I was in New York up until I moved to Wales last year. Um, but I was fully immersed in the music business. I was um, I uh, was at Billboard by now. Um, started from the mailroom, sorted sorting mail and being an editorial assistant by. Uh, I would say by 91, I was the dance music editor and a single reviews editor. And so my relationship to music and to the world was very different than any other Hidden Gems ep ex uh, episodes we've done so far because I had a very different feeling and attention to music by the time we got to the 90s. It was good. Yeah, I mean, all part of your dance tracks, spelt with an X column, um, which uh, I used to pour over the whole time with you, with your uh, spectacular head of hair. and um, <laughs> Which is all gone now. I know, but it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing. And, um, and I, the really 90s for me was the big, interestingly sort of, the, the the lifespan of Brothers in Rhythm, we kind of got together in 1990 and we stopped um, in sort of 1999. So that was most wow. of my 
time in the 90s was was spent predominantly with them with Dave Seaman getting away with it you know remixing things producing things uh writing columns um heavily inspired by Larry um usually stolen uh various bits and pieces uh, for Mix Mag and Mix Mag Update um so yeah it was an interesting time it was a you know it was kind of the beginning of me working at DMC and and then finding this incredible so, musical soulmate to go and uh, have fun adventures with but musically um there are no rules for this thing we always say oh that would be a good idea and then curse ourselves for not doing it into subcategories i'm allowing everyone four choices because i've felt that when i've had feedback people love the choices and you know we should do a few more um but there's no outside of that there's no remit whatsoever it is what it is anyone can choose anything we like it to not be album tracks we like them to be singles but they can be successful they don't have to be not in the top 40 they can just be a song that you hear from the 90s and go oh man i remember that song that's great i haven't heard it for ages so with that in mind mr bennett we are going to start with you with song number 1 oh, wow. hidden gem of okay. the 90s so I'm going to go with something that I think is probably my most Steve Anderson like choice for the first one. He's getting um, it in early to see if he can gazump me by the way. I'm hoping <laughs> you don't that I I might make a steal on you. So I'm going to go with an enormous power ballad that I felt like should have been number 1 everywhere and it was big in Canada as they say but only number 79 in the UK. Um, produced by David Tyson, who produced Tina Marina's very big Don't Ask album and Black Velvet for Alana Miles as well. Um, it's just, I, listening back to it in, in, when trying to decide what to choose for this, it still gave me goosebumps, still brought a tear, and I thought if it can do that, then I've picked the right song. So it's called Beautiful Goodbye by Amanda Marshall. Right. Well, do you know what? It is on, on my list, but it would it was it was bubbling under. So you have not stolen oh. from me. You have you have because it nearly was in there. Um, Interesting. It's got all the drama of of a Steve Anderson classic to me. It's got big sort of swooping sounds and drama and and feels very cinematic and Amanda's very big guttural kind of voice which sort of dominates it. It just it's just one of those songs you just cannot work out what didn't connect because it's got everything for me about a good power ballad. So um, interestingly and, with that song, yeah. I mean, I'm interested how you found it because I personally found it because of David Tyson. I used to go to um, record shops in the 90s or CD shops and stuff and you used to be able to pick up the CD and open the booklet and see who was involved in it. And I'd had a couple of uh, things that I'd got with, that Dave Tyson had done. And I thought, oh, well, if he's done it, it must be good. So I think I gave it a, a, a chance. How did you come across that song and that artist? I, yeah, I don't know whether it was a chart show thing, whether the chart show was still happening. It was like 1996. I'm not sure if it was through that or if it was through the radio, where I probably still would have got stuff from at that point. But I remember it being a stop you in your tracks the first time that you heard it because it's just so big. Um, and the rest of the album was really good as well. It wasn't like it was a standout tune and the rest was filler. There were some great tunes. Um, I think one's called Last Exit to Eden and Dark Horse. There were some really big songs on there. Um, I think she opened for Whitney during the My Love Is Your Love tour in, in Europe, I think. So everything seemed in place for her to just skyrocket. But for whatever reason, who knows the reasons why? Maybe Larry will know the reasons why, because he knows everything that happens behind the scenes. 
it just didn't connect. But uh, it sounds as classic to me today, which is, I guess, what we're looking for here in terms of songs that have stood the test of time that feel like they need another another airing. Yeah. What, 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 how was that in America, that, that, that song? Well, I, I remember getting a, a copy of this record to write about. And, uh, and I reviewed um, a few songs, um, uh, Let It Rain, Dark Horse. And the problem in America was that it, they marketed the project and her as a rock artist and not as a pop artist. And rock radio and rock press rejected her because she wasn't, she didn't have enough, enough of that swagger. Um, she had a rock and roll look and she had the really beautiful hair that was big. And, you know, she, she had like, she had the look, but the music was pretty pop. And, um, and I think that was the mistake they made. They, you know, they, they didn't go, they didn't go uh, with her strength, which was straight up pop and straight up, maybe even adult contemporary. They really wanted her to be a rock star and it just didn't, it just didn't happen. But it's a great record. Yeah, I can. I amazing I've, record. Yeah, I've always felt that there's a a cover in there. I felt like um, sure. I think it I was some. Yeah, I always thought that maybe it was something that even when I was making the Claire Richards record, that maybe that would have been a a good choice to to, to try. But I didn't. Well, think Leona, I could hear Leona Lewis. Yes, still exactly. Yeah, song. Leona would be amazing. Well. So no, really good first choice, and you you have not gazumped me. It certainly was on the list, but Phew. I. But I, I, I popped it down. I, I have a, there, there's one or two that were on mine that I may have kind of got you on, actually, but let's see. Um, Larry, where are we going next? Larry, by the way, has, is so good at this game because he just thinks of his gut, gut feeling and then sticks with it. And it's the best thing. And I started to do that. And then I, I wandered into a playlist and then I was in all kinds of hell. Yeah. So Larry's, been, Larry's a master of the game on this one. Well, I don't know about that, but I, I, I decided um, that I was just going to write down four titles. And then I wrote down three more. And then I stopped. And one of the bottom three almost made it into the four. And then I said, nah. And I took it out. Went, kept with my original four. So what's, um, number, what's the first one then? So the first one is actually by a very, very, very well-known artist. But it's a song from her least successful album and was probably the least successful single from her least successful album. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and that, it, but it, to me, it's the best in her catalog. And I've said this to her and we've actually had the, the great thing about this period of time was I was interviewing artists about their work so I could get insight into the records. So the artist is Katie Lang yeah. and the song is called Get Some yeah. from the album All You Can Eat. Yeah. Now, all you can eat was the record that followed Ingenue. And Ingenue was her breakout record. She won a load of Grammys for it. It was her transition from country into pop. And it was one of those omnipresent, oh my God, I think I'm getting sick of this record kind of hits. Mm. And she got sick of it. And so she went and she formed a, a little four piece band and wrote a record about sex because she had also finally officially come out came out as a lesbian mm -hmm. so all the songs had kind of like a baseline a very simple almost 70s style you know groove that was really about 
getting in touch with your true sexual self um, and get some obviously has the double entendre. It's really about going to get the love that you want for yourself. It did have a, a very nice remix by Junior Vasquez. Didn't do anything either. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was, this actually was the beginning of Katie Lang's club era mm-hmm. where she stopped having hits on pop radio almost immediately upon the release of this album. And she just started to hang with the queers in the clubs. And I always love this song. I love, the layering at the chorus. I love the whole double entendre of like, you know, here was this woman who, when she was a country artist, you were not allowed to ask her about even her gender Mm. because she was very, very trans looking back in her country days. She dressed like a cowboy a lot. Yeah. Um, And and here she was, you know, playing with this whole idea of sexuality. And the song is just gorgeous. It's like, it's like a lost treasure. So get some by Katie Lang. I love that. And that just reminds me so much of, of just generally being in New York and, and that whole feel of it, of, of, the, of the city. Um, how about you, uh, Lee? Are you a KD fan? I'm guessing yes. So that's my favourite album of hers by Miles. Um, interesting. It's her greatest record. Yeah, it's, greatest it's, record. it's a late night record. I, it was one of mine, along with like Fiona Apple's title that I'd put on late at night and just listen to the whole thing through. No skips. And it would just send you off somewhere. Beautiful record. Yeah. It's also her favorite record, by the way. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And as you say, a very brave following up Nojon Nui with, with something so different. But um, as you mm. say, it was it was what she was inspired by at the time. And, and yeah. yeah. And that was, I think there was something, I'm trying to think, what year was that? What year was the album? At? That was 1995. Yeah, exactly. So it was that really cool time when you know, that technology was kind of coming on a, lot, a little bit more and they could be more playful, but still incredibly melodic, which is the good thing that she always brings, and multi-layered. So, um, and, and as you say, the, the junior mix for, you know, despite it not being wildly successful, it's, you know, that, those sound factory mixes are revered, aren't they, really? Yes. By, by, yes. by so many people. Okay, cool. Very good. Good start for the, the two of them. Um, my first one is, again, gonna, I'll, I'll sort of take the mantle of it being a singer that's that probably, that had had a lot of success, and this is possibly not the most successful song or album, but to me it um, it completely floored me when I first heard the single and then uh, consequently the album. Um just purely because I was not expecting this person to do this. She's got such a characteristic voice. Um, and also it involved um, one of my favourite producers of all time, who's a wonderful man called Phil Ramone, who's no longer with us. Um, but he produced many, many things in 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, was responsible for Billy Joel, worked with Sinatra, worked with absolutely any everybody. Um, but my first pick for the 90s Hidden Gems um is a song called Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home by Sinead O'Connor, which is from an album called Am I Not Your Girl, which was like her her sort of ode, I suppose, to that beautiful, bombastic kind of sound of an orchestra and a big of, of a band. But for me, it um, it kind of almost felt like it, it was much more inspired by West Side Story. And, you know, it was not after everything that she did with Nothing Compares, nobody expected this to happen. Um, the album was called Am I Not Your Girl? And the vocal on this song is, uh, 
is so extraordinary. She's so exasperated and breathless by the end. I mean, I felt like when you listen to it, you, you, you're almost there with her and you can feel her kind of almost physically collapse by the end of it. Um, and it's, yeah, I found it extraordinary. It's, it's sort of in the world of, um, I suppose, Play Dead by Bjork. It's got that same kind of feel to it. But um, yeah, I I loved it. And I, and I felt that so much now you you look for people that that really within two seconds of hearing them you know it's absolutely their voice and i think Sinead's always been one of those so that's my first choice you know that might be my the only song by Sinead o'connor that i like because i'm not a fan right i'm not a fan um but that song is just i think it's it's a I think it's an example of what happens when a strong-willed artist meets an equally strong-willed producer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having had the honor of interviewing Phil Ramon, um, he will say no and ha- did say no to Aretha Franklin and Billy Joel. So Sinead O'Connor is like a mouse compared yeah. to those artists. Yeah. So I'm sure there was a lot of no in the studio and a lot of do it again and do it again and do it again because he was a very exacting producer. And I feel like you hear that. I feel like he brought out the best in her, whereas I think she can be a very intimidating person and will will make many a seemingly strong producer fold. Mm. So I think it's really a great meeting of brilliant talent because, you know, I always listen to that song and think, I always have what ifs about her. And, you know, because, yeah, because I've never been that keen on her music, but I love that song. And it's very funny, just as an aside, it still sound like I'm being um, a bit cloying, but it's just so funny you mentioned, Phil, because whenever I talk about your, your modern day production, Steve, I liken it to Bill Ramone. Uh, very similar sensibilities, I find. Wow. Well, I, I'll take that i'm not sure if i deserve it but i'll certainly take that i do think i've followed his career massively and and um if anyone is interested um he has an inc- there's an incredible book out um about him and about his life in, including he, this amazing story that without going too far into it it's five or six days when sinatra was uh, they were trying to record an album with Sinatra and he kept turning up and the orchestra was there all day and then he'd turn up and go, yeah, I'm not in the mood and leave. And on day six, they realised after spending that much money, they had to get the performance. Um, so Phil Ramone decided the only way to do it was to invite a small audience in and put a, put a stool where Frank was and the orchestra was there. And when Frank turned up, Ramone just turned around to him and said, right, put on, we need you to put a show on. These people are here to see you. Put us a sh- Put us on a show. And that was the album. Um, so he's full of so many little smart production tricks that we've all borrowed from over the years. But he's the king of um, uh, whatever it takes to make the artist comfortable, which is the job of the producer more than anything else. So um, you you nodded your head when I mentioned that song, Lee. So I'm guessing that's one that you're very aware of. Yeah, my favourite Sinead song too. I love the drama 
of it again it's it's so sweeping we, 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 we're the kings of drama and romance i feel so far with our first two choices <laughs> well yeah what i know smoothies but I, we are well yeah but i reckon we're gonna i reckon we're gonna end up on the dance floor at least larry and i might end up on the dance floor we'll, we'll be dancing and then we'll say i'll be the, crying in the corner somewhere, yeah yeah, you'll be, yeah on crying on the dance floor <laughs> <laughs> lee will be in 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 the end you know sort of at the end of the going home moment okay good three down amazing job this is good we're keeping it really really tight uh lee second choice from you so i'm going to go with something here which really did bring about a huge shift in my listening patterns um and this might be interesting to larry because he i don't know how much he knows about this but in the early 90s we had really not been exposed to much country music in the uk beyond the very 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 big artists and so the, the kind of pop country stuff that America and Canada had been loving, we really didn't get access to it until satellite television happened and we put big dishes on the side of our houses and we suddenly got CMT uh, music channel, which just changed everything for me, a proper game changer in terms of the artists that I would never, ever have ever heard in a million years had it not been for that channel. And I discovered some records which are still some of my favourite records to this day as a result of that. And the one that I'm going to pick from that whole clutch of artists from around that period is probably one of the most obscure ones, which is sort of the point, I think, of Hidden Gems. Um, so I'm going with Farmer's Daughter and a song that's called Now That I'm On My Own. They, Steve's looking at me like, I don't know what no, that I, means. I was actually, I'm, I was sitting over at my record, my CD collection and I was about to pull out what I thought you were going to say and it wasn't that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it was just, it, they're a bit like a Canadian country Wilson Phillips is the best way of describing them. Ooh. I think yet again, I don't know what the Canada link is with me today, but they were big in Canada. I don't think the song did big things anywhere else, but again, it's just got the most devastatingly beautiful chorus and the harmonies are absolutely to die for as well. It's a song that just stood out for me when I remember hearing it on CMT back in the day. Um, and it, it's probably got quite a lot of pop crossover to it. Maybe that's why I love it. But I'm so grateful to have had CMT back then in terms of I would never have known Dina Carter or Patti Loveless or, or Mindy McCready. I would never have known those folks had it not been for CMT. Um, yeah, so that's my second choice. Farmer's Daughter and Now That I'm On My Own. Such a great song. Okay, oh, yeah. Larry, I'm going to leave this to you because I've never heard that before in my life. Such a great song and such a great band and another band that suffered from poor label marketing because they were marketed in America as an answer to Wilson Phillips. Mm, I can see that. And it didn't, it didn't fly because they they just did they just didn't and you know the problem with a with a country with, well certainly country music back then but even still to this day although it has gotten better in recent years is you can't break country if you're not from the heartland of america the the doors to that music scene were locked and the gatekeeping was really, really fierce. And it was particularly hard for women. It still is hard for women, but it was even harder still back then. So they could not go the country route, which is where I think they should have gone. They went the AC Wilson Phillips route in America and, you know, and it didn't work, which is a shame because it's a beautiful record. 
uh, beautiful band, lovely. Lo- I never met them. Sad I never got to meet them, but uh, lovely record. And they just seemed like nice, nice humans as well. So I think you'll love this, one. Steve. If you've not heard it, I honestly think you'll love it, Steve, if you listen. Of course. Well, I like the fact that both of you two are, are, are giving it that kind of accolade. I just know that I will. And and I, I too. You'll love it. You will love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I too loved a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the a lot of the country that was that was around then. And again, it was very much buying CDs or buying uh, records based on people's names. And there were a few producers that were always really great at doing that stuff. So I will definitely... But you know learn. what else was... But you know what else that I, uh, was great about the 90s and the 80s, actually, that we don't have anymore, which was used record stores. Yeah. Right? In New York, we had this real... We had a few of them, but we have one in particular called Sounds. And you could buy a record by Farmer's Daughter for a dollar. Yeah. And it would be a no-risk experiment in listening. So you would buy records based on the credits on the back, or you would buy records based on the artwork. I picked up many an album based on a really cool record sleeve or CD booklet for like a dollar. And you go home, and it's like, oh, well, this isn't very good, but I only spent a dollar. It's okay. Or oh my God, I can't believe I found this band, which, you know, no one else knows. And now I feel super smart and I'm going to tell everyone I know about it. You know, I, that's the part of music that I miss now. I guess it's supposed to be easier because of streaming, but it's not as much fun. Yeah, it's I, much fun. I agree. And I think I'm, I'm almost certainly will be exactly the same as me in this with, with the fact that it, one of the reasons that we do know some of this obscure stuff is because of those moments where, you know, whether it be in my world, there was a, a record shop in uh, a record shop called Adrian's and there was a record shop called Fives and the Golden Disc and all around where I was. And every Saturday you'd go in and you'd look for the kind of reduced yeah, the things. And, and, and I agree with what you're saying, Larry, because if it had been a fully priced thing, you'd have thought, ah, that's not worth the risk. But actually for a dollar or a pound or, you know, two pounds, you know, it's how I discovered when I was a kid, it was how I discovered so many bands that, you know, even, you know, bands as sort of slightly obscure as people like Alan Parsons Project or, you know, people like that. You just go in and you could buy their whole back catalogue for like £10 because it was all just a pound each. Um, but then you'd go and listen to it and you'd, you'd, you'd find it. And as you say, looking at the back, I mean, my one quite obviously understandably because of what you know what i do now is anytime i looked at the back and there was a credit for an orchestra i pretty much bought it so <laughs> or if there was a credit for an orchestrator or an arranger or someone like that or, or a producer or anything so yeah, yeah i love that i love that i would i would look for i would look for certain producers or mixers yeah for a while i was obsessed with anything mixed by bob clear mountain yes because he had just the cleanest production uh uh mixing uh approach but yeah, it's funny. Um, even though it was only a dollar, because you made as somewhat of an investment, you gave the songs more of, and because you had to carry it on your body into your home, put it on a record turntable or a CD uh, box or a cassette player, you you let the record play straight through because you spent a dollar on it. Mm. Whereas when you're streaming, you just think. I sometimes don't give songs more than 10 seconds. I'm like, nope, taking too long. Yeah. You know, and you, you made the investment because you spent, even if it's, you know, like a dollar back in those days was you know, money to me. Mm. So I would give it, I would give it a full chance. I'd listen to it a few times. Whereas 
in the world of streaming where there's just everything at your fingertips, if it doesn't grab you in 10 seconds, you will very likely move on. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, my I, agree, I agree with that. So where are we going next, Larry? We are going on to the dance floor. Yes. Uh, I knew, I knew you'd end up taking us on oh, the dance floor. Of course, darling. Uh, in 1993, a woman who uh, was becoming, which now I call Auntie Martha, put out her first solo record. This was her chance to prove to the world that she could be a pop star. Didn't happen. But she rode the wave of her connection to CNC Music Factory and to Black Box onto a record deal for RCA. Um, and um, came out with the epic album was called Something Special. And, um, and she released, um, no, it's actually just called Martha Wash, forgive me. Um, and she put out three singles. This was the third single. This is one of her most beloved songs, but it was not a hit. And it wasn't even, it was only a middling club hit even, which I think is a travesty criminal. I listened to the song. I've listened to the song regularly, at least once a week since it came out in 1992, because it's one of my all time favorite songs. And I just think it's beyond, there's no, nothing better than carry on by Martha Wash. It is, it is 90s house music with gospel and R&B and the, one of the finest voices in contemporary music history from my point of view. And um, the message is powerful and empowering and there's nothing like being on the dance floor when this song starts to play. It is, it is next, next level. Especially with that voice as well. Yeah, so Carry On by Martha Wash. If you don't know it, it will become one of your favorites if you like, if you like soulful dance music. Um, yeah. That's, it's a good reminder, really good reminder of Martha, because obviously for a lot of people that might not know, you know, Martha was sampled quite a lot for most, for a lot of her hits, um, but actually went on yeah. to, 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 to make new stuff. And I think that was... Um, there were some great mixes of that as well. I think there's a Masters at Work mixes and yeah. Todd mixes some, and stuff. Some, and it bears noting for those who have not made the connection yet, Martha dates all the way back to the late 70s, early 80s as one of Two Tons of Fun, the two women who sang back up for Sylvester in San Francisco. They eventually uh, went, went separate from, from um, Sylvester to form the Weather Girls sang the song It's Raining Men um, which as a sidebar was a cast off from Donna Summer she decided not to record that song um, and uh, and you know and then went on being sampled she is uh, still making records they don't really do very much because she's not always making dance music anymore and she is on a, a, a Queens of Disco tour eternally with a uh, Evelyn Champagne King and uh, Linda Clifford and uh, and some of the ladies from Chic. I mean, and she still sounds as amazing as she ever did. And she looks about 25. Yeah. Which really, which really ticks me off. But she's my <laughs> Auntie Martha now. She's my Auntie Martha now. We've been through a lot together, Martha and I. 
And um, so I, I, you know, I still call her a bitch when I see her. She calls me a uh, scoundrel because she's a good Christian woman who doesn't curse. Oh. Um, if she doesn't enjoy a cigarette, don't repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just said it. I think you said it. Uh, is that a bit niche for you, Lee? I know her. I don't know the song. So yeah. probably a little bit niche for well, me. But I, think, I will listen now. Yeah, yeah. I think because the idea behind it was, you know, how, you know, this voice of Black Box and CNC Music Factory and I think, oh, I don't know if it was Snap, but I mean, she was sampled so much. The idea of making a new record with her was really, really good. And she made a really, really good record. It's just that, weirdly, people didn't quite connect with her as an artist as much as they did with her as a, as a sample, which is, you know, some, and, and that's happened a few times, weirdly, when people have taken the voice behind something and then given them their own project, and it hasn't quite connected in the same way. Yeah, and it's also, um, I, I, I now call it the pre-Adele era. Mm. In that, you know, back pre-Adele, a woman of size could not have, no matter how beautiful she was, mm. could not be competitive in the pop mainstream. And it was, it was Adele that made way for Lizzo, that made way for a lot of, of more full-figured women to be seen as gorgeous and talented. Um, this was at an era where she was still being called fat. Wow. Yeah. I mean, important to remember that as much as there are moments that we will possibly slightly lament some of the things from the past, that's one thing that's definitely become, that's definitely better in yes. where we are now is, is that attitude towards, especially towards women. Um, really good choice. I, ha I haven't heard that for a long time. Again, it really reminds me of New York in the 90s and, and, <laughs> and going to those clubs and experiencing it for the first time and... Um, yeah, I love that. And and you know what, Larry, I'm gonna I'm gonna join you. I'm gonna join you in the club in New York. And you better. Well, yeah, no, I feel like I have to, but I, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm collecting a few of my favorite things together. I'm collecting one of my favorite male singers, and there's not many of them in my list. One of my favorite male singers of, of all time. Um, one of my favorite writers and arrangers of all time, and one of my favorite remixers of all time that all got together. Um, as part of a, a single that came out from an album, a second album by this artist that I loved anyway, and who ended up, I ended up working with and, and uh, is my friend and, uh, and actually I'm seeing him very soon. Um, but it just was that great mix of perfect songwriting and a really, sometimes, you know, sometimes club mixes take away the melody, take away the song. Morales and, and Frankie, for me, always kept it. And, you know, they always kept the intense, intensity of the song. Uh, and, and the only, it's one of these songs that seem, seemingly any time I say it to anyone, they kind of sigh with this kind of love of, oh my God, that song. So my second choice is my incredibly talented friend, Clive Griffin, and a song called I'll Be Waiting. Larry, Larry is swooning. <laughs> is that me swooning? Um, oh my God, I love that song so much. You know how much I love that song. Yeah. We, we talked about that record not that long ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, it, and obviously the original um, was uh, from an album called Inside Out um, and uh, was his second album on Phonogram. Uh, and uh, yeah, David just took it and made it smooth. I mean, it's got, you know, it just has, 
And it's actually a duet. I mean, that's the thing. It's only Clyde Clive and a girl called Sarah Brown who sing it as a duet. But his voice on it, I mean, he has, Clive, for anyone that doesn't know, is that incredible mix of a sort of James Ingram meets Michael McDonald. Um, and he's British. Um, so and he's gorgeous. And he's gorgeous and he's wonderful. He, he went on to like have an incre- ice cream cone in August. There you are. You just want to lick him. I'm, I'm seeing him this weekend. I'm going to tell him exactly <laughs> word for word what you just said. Um, and, but I will not lick him. Um, but <laughs> I think Lee has disappeared into the color of his red T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Lee's fine. <laughs> Lee, Lee can. I think we've. I think we've realized from our little, uh, you know, messenger chat that Lee is very, very at home with the camera. Lee and can oft, hang. And often, often brings more than than than, than we can handle. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm guessing you know we're it's early nineties, but I'm guessing you're very aware of that, right, Lee? Yeah, that's uh, th- there's just so many from that that very period that you just don't get why it didn't quite happen because everything is is there for it to be a huge success as you say the look the sound songs the production he seemed like a, a superstar in the making to me um and it's it's something about it felt like maybe it came around about that time where pop was briefly a bit of a dirty word wasn't it really there was just that period where we were I don't know, it was we were heading towards the grunge period, the Spice Girls hadn't quite happened and and it felt like pop wasn't quite as popular as it had been in the 80s. Maybe it was that reaction to the 80s that was that saw a lot of these acts not quite fly in the way that they could have. That's true, but all, but also I was going to say, Larry, sorry to jump in there, but I was going to say, and I think you'll, you'll even in, especially in America, it, it was a very weird thing that happened that even at the beginning of the 90s, it was very hard to get a 4-4 house record on radio, um, especially in the UK. You know, we had Pete Tong, who had his show that used to play stuff, but there, it was, dance music was sneered about. It was sort of seen as, it was, it was perceived as, you know, not proper. It was sort of looked at as being a bit cheap. And I mean, I'll Be Waiting was absolutely a number one dance billboard single. You know, it, it had all that kind of stuff and translated perfectly to that market but i do remember that at the time even getting anything on the radio with a with a four four was was actually quite difficult so it may have struggled because well it was a it was an enormous club record in america it was i mean huge club record in america um but you're right i mean in america and we had dance programming on radio here uh, and we even had what they used to call rhythm crossover stations, which would be dance leaning stations. But there were so few um, tracks. There was a lot of classics going on. And the other thing is he was in America competing with solo George Michael. And and there was only room for one white guy singing what, what we call black music. And uh, and George got the spot because back then there was a lot of bean counting in terms of gender, race, culture of origin, culture or country of origin, weight, <laughs> all these things. It, w- it was way, 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 way more segregated and and discriminatory than it is now, and it's still pretty bad from my point of view. But yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, too white for black radio, too British for pop radio, 
and not George Michael. So he uh, it was three strikes and he was out. But he was a huge club artist. There's another artist in in that category for me as well, but I won't say his name just in case he's going to bob up. In case <laughs> someone else. Up. So I'll keep his name back. But there's someone else that fits all of what you've just described, Larry, in terms of someone that I think called very similarly in terms of style as well. But I'll, I'll say later. There was a really interesting time as well then with David and Frankie when they were working. And I remember one of the first times I met David, he was at, I don't know where it would have been, Power Station or something like that. And he had four studios running at the same time and he was doing four remixes at the same time. And he'd just jump in with, he had a team in each, with each one and, you know, sort of advise and get involved and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, the other bedfellow for this this sort of choice, and I'm not using it to crowbar another one in, but I think it's a good example of how much incredible quality was coming from there was a, was a song called So Much Love by Malaika that, um, again, fitted that Red Zone death mix thing. And, you know, as a remixer for myself, hearing those those records were, were amazing. So, um, yes, I, I will send your best to Mr. Griffin when I see him. Um, Lee, we, we, we've... we've We've been on the dance floor. I guess you're taking us off the dance floor and now we're going to go to cry in the cupboard. I'm going to join you on the dance floor. I feel I feel I have to now. You've made it such a welcoming space. Come come <laughs> on, come on the dance floor. That I'm you going know you to, want to. Um, I'm going to be in come the on. sandwich somewhere with Pardon? you. Both. Okay. Yeah, right. sandwich. Okay. Um, so I'm going to pick the least successful record by a relatively successful dance act, as we seem to like to do. You do you know what? There's a TV program called Pointless, like, which yeah. is about, <laughs> I feel like we're turning into that. The a least little bit. The least successful song of the least successful album for an artist that is, yeah, it was really, I love it. But we give, we give better prizes than they do on Pointless. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Come on, Lee, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm not entirely sure a lick from Larry should be considered as the best prize, but we will we will see how that pans well, out. Maybe it's it. who knows? Who knows? You haven't been licked by me, but this is true. Yeah, yeah. Don't diss it till you've felt it. Yeah. Oh, please. Okay. Let's let's ease yourself. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> the choice I'm going to make is uh, an album that is probably. Am I going to say this? I am going to say this. This is my favourite dance album of all time. Um, it's by a New York group, and Larry's going to have loads to say about this. I know that he is. Um, I'm sure there's lots of stories. I know there are lots of stories. Um, so the album is called Dew Drops in the Garden, and the single from it is called Picnic in the Summertime. It is just, whenever I think of making playlists for people with summer dance songs, I pick Picnic in the Summertime by Delight. It's Delight. Um, Picnic in the Summertime and Dew Drops in the Garden was quite a psychedelic dance album. It had some very different influences, but still all the samples were there and it, it had everything that made their previous two albums fun. Um, it just had a bit of a different take, but it still sounds so good. And I hear it in quite a lot of stuff from the last couple of years so I can hear a lot of this record in the confidence man stuff that is I'm so pleased to say blowing up big big style at the moment um so yeah it didn't really do much for them chart wise was the end of their career they never made another album together after this one but it remains my favorite of the three so the song I choose is picnic in the summertime from Dewdrops in the garden by delight well they're going to send you a thank you note for the money you spent on it because you were the only person who bought it <laughs> yeah it was a bomb it didn't even get played in the clubs in america it was a it was a bomb but i have to pay tribute to delight because 
thanks to them and Groovers in the Heart, I got to be the dance editor at Billboard because my predecessor, Bill Coleman, was managing Delight and they had made the album World Click. And um, Bill was told, you manage Delight or you work at Billboard, pick one. And um, and he chose to manage Delight, which meant I got to get the job as dance editor. So I will forever have a place in my heart for them. I love that record. It feels to I, me, I, it's, to me, Larry, I think it's that interesting. Record is a great loss. It's a I've, great loss. I've never been to New York, but it sounds like New York to me. The record, it, it feels like it, it took me to Central Park on a sunny day with a load of friends, yeah. sat having fun, listening to music, having a uh, having a laugh and a giggle. It, I feel like it totally transported me to that place. It's a it's a great record, and you are you you know it, it succeeded in its goal. Uh, the behind the scenes on that record is that that was it was their last record, not just because it didn't sell, but because they had stopped liking each other, and so they were very rarely in the room at the same time while the record was being made, which is unfortunate because um, all three of them were lovely people. I'm sure are lovely people, then none of them are dead, um, and um, yeah, great record. I, I also have to thank Delight because whilst the boys were talking i just reached over and found something i haven't looked at for a long time which is the very first new music seminar in new york i went to whereas the first time i met larry i was they always did giveaways um and they handed it was been electra records handed out something and it was two cds and one of it was something called uh heartthrob which heartthrobs, which I don't know anything about, which was which was that, and then on the other side of it was that, which is wow. Groovers in the Heart, and that is from the New Music Seminar 1990, where wow. we first met, and I forgot that Isn't I even had it. Um, I have to That's say, a collectible. It might be a collectible, yeah. Um, I, I must admit, I'm I I thought the first record was extraordinary. I I didn't really. I remember that album you're talking about lee turning up at mix mag and i think i ended up passing it off to someone else to review because i couldn't find a great deal to say that was kind about it um but i will go back and listen to that song because i have a feeling that I, with different ears it may uh with, with more you know to listen to it now they were always incredibly inventive i loved that i loved how they didn't sound like anybody else and um and I think I'm, I, I probably dismissed it. And because it wasn't successful, it wouldn't have kind of caught up with me. So I shall, um, I'll give it a go. But, um, but I'm, and I'm, hey, Lady Miss Care, Lady Miss Care has been working on a solo record for 25 years. So you never know. Well, there's lots of Delight Love anyway. And I will go back and yeah. check, that, check yes. that one out. So, uh, it's a good summer tune, Steve. It's a big summer tune. I love a summer tune. I love a summer tune. Okay, Larry, where are we going next? All right, so I'm leaving the dance floor for a cool drink in the south of America. What, um, with, what, uh, what, are, you, what are you drinking? Uh, mint julep, of course. Yeah, was that would that would be your kind of drink of choice in the '90s, or were you a bit more of a kind of no. cos, Cosmo girl? In America, I was a vodka on the rocks kind of gal. I thought you were going to give me some amazing Sex in the City cocktail. Oh no, no! Oh. I used to hang out. I used to hang out with like you know British berry guys. So no, we drank we drank beer and booze. Okay, all right. That didn't quite go as <laughs> didn't quite wasn't quite as glamorous as I hoped. But anyway, no, I'm we're, sorry. We're, 
Okay, well, don't sorry. worry. The leaders off the dance floor because we're all a bit sweaty after after that. Anyway, we're so a bit sweaty. We're a bit sweaty. We need so, a little cool down. Go on. Back in the late '80s, there was a band that I was obsessed with called Lone Justice. They didn't last more than two albums, um, but the lead singer was the most remarkable, teeny tiny young woman with a voice that I still liken to Laura Nero's, but with more soul. Um, she's made a lot of very strange solo records over the last 10 or 20 years, but there's one that I still listen to on a regular basis. It's from an album called You Gotta Sin to Get Saved, and this track is called I'm Gonna Soothe You. Now, what I love about the song is that she does not wail like she has she does on a lot of her records. She's saying it's much more Carol King, Laura Nero temperament, but there's, there are some soulful horn flourishes. Um, it just has, it has a nice kind of R and B flavor without being an R and B record. Um, it's kind of almost like a, like a, an Americana country soul type of record. Um, the chorus is just, it's so simple, but it's so beautiful. And, um, and I will follow Maria McKee, even when she makes weird records, to the ends of the earth. Um, because I'm just obsessed with her voice. And I'm obsessed with the fact that the world was at her feet. And she said, nah. And she went and made avant-garde records instead of continuing to make records that sounded like Low Justice. Or like um, Show Me Heaven. Um, which was, you know, she basically made enough to support herself for the rest of her life on show me heaven and uh and has just been funding these very strange independent records ever since i um i have that album and again it was one of the ones that uh unlike the other one you know when we used to get sent stuff um for mix mag that would be you know from warners they used to there was a, you know that would be one that immediately i got and i i i immediately sort of felt compelled to kind of go to and and it turns out that you know lee and i have so many of these female kind of singer the songwriter third albums didn't do anything um we share so many over the years that we've known each other we keep coming up with them um so i wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of maria mckee records in lee's record collection yeah for sure although i'm going to be very controversial because you know i love to be and uh, to say that I actually prefer Tina Arena singing Show Me Heaven. Oh! I'm hanging up. <laughs> well, that's all right. Uh, let me, let me, I'll balance it out. Because say, after, 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 after Maria McKee, I'm going to Laura Branigan. Then I'll hang out with Tina Arena. <laughs> I'll just I'll, I'll just put my little uh, thing in and say that the uh, Luke Evans version of Show Me Heaven from the album I produced is you know, that's worth listening to as oh, well. Oh, that's all of our favourites, <laughs> No, generally. Of course. Yeah. No, but I love Maria's voice. And I actually love that um, the Lone Justice records were really, really good as well. Um, so, no, I think that's a, re that, that's a really, really good choice. And again, it's, it's, it's an album that I have. And it's funny, actually, in the world of streaming, I don't know if you two are like this, but I'm surrounded by CDs that I haven't probably listened to for a while. And you need that reminder to go oh i should go and you know obviously it will be on streaming now but I, i'll need that reminder to go find it so i did that in prep for this i dug out quite a few that listened and and amazingly it's amazing how they sound and, and how you fall in love with them again so we should you should do it as an exercise even if you're not making podcasts dig out a couple of hours a week and throw them on and just 
reimmersed. All right. So do you know what? For my third one, I'm I'm coming to Wales. I am coming to Ooh. Wales. Um I it's really hard when you say the words one hit wonder because it's never a one hit wonder. Like there's lots of other things that people have done, but there's one thing that someone's known for. And I think if you're ever going to be known for something, a, a song and a track that from the very, very first five seconds instills like so much peace and love and joy and just a, a, such a unique voice that um, it's a vocal quality that this this girl has that I, I've, you know, you really search for and it's very, very hard to find because it's just so bright and beautiful. And for me, arguably one of the best pop records ever made. Um, and I won't carry on going on about it because it'd be very, very easy when I say it. Um, and it's Donna Lewis, I Love You Always Forever, which has then been sampled and changed and done over the years, I know. But the original version of that song remains to be the most goosebump-inducing thing that you know I've, one of them that i've ever heard so there you go that i bring i bring wales into the equation i love that record i love her she did go on to make a lot of beautiful records that nobody really paid attention to but and she's still making records she is um, yeah she's still making records as far as i know um i i love that song to me, that song is the the birth parent to "I Want You" by Savage Garden, mm-hmm. and to about a dozen other songs. Um, gorgeous, flawless, lovely and, girl too. Yeah, lovely and, girl, and not just a hit in this country. It was a you know, it was one of those. There was a, there was those kind of moments where they were, and they get those songs that just immediately just feel so easy to just fit into a film or a TV show. You know, it's like waiting for a star to fall is a similar kind of thing. It's got those kind of immediate moments. But um, but yeah, I did something. David and I remixed a, an Art of Noise track that she was on. I remember getting the the parts of her solo vocal and it just sounds extraordinary. So um, rather than pick one of the other songs that she did, which would be more of a hidden gem, I just thought, go with the one. Because sometimes... I've noticed that there's things that I think are really obvious, but then people will go, oh my God, I've not thought about that for ages. So I'm going Donna Lewis. Um, that right with you, Lee? You love that tune, love the whole album, and also really love, I think it's called I Could Be The One, which was, I think, the lead single to the second album, which samples, I want to say, Mary's Prayer by Danny Wilson. Oh, another good one. I think that was the lead single of the second album. It's a really gorgeous tune. Cool. Amazing. Well, we love Donna. We love Donna. So, um, okay, I think we're uh, we, we're getting into the, the the home straight now, Lee. So, and also just 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 an F, as an FYI, uh, Donna Lewis's most recent single was called "Stones in the Riverbed," and that was from last year. There you go. Still out there. Still doing it. Still got the most extraordinary voice. So, Lee, have you stuck to your guns? Have you moved things around, or have you? Changed your last choice? Uh, or you... No, sticking with. <laughs> so I'm going to go with um, 
I'm sure we must all do this. I, I know that you two are in the same kind of musical headspace as me. So every now and again in my head, I create who are my top 10 artists of all time, just for fun, sitting on the train and playing through who they might be. And this lady is in mine um, and will probably always be there. Not very well known in the UK other than to the, the kind of tastemakers and the Bob Harris crew on Radio 2. Um, this was the album that was my introduction to her, um, which was an album late because she just won a Grammy, I think the album before for a folkier sound. And this was her record, which was, I think the US record companies attempt to make her a bit poppier. They got Larry Klein involved, Joni Mitchell's producer, and Joni actually does percussion and hand claps, I believe, on some of the songs. Um, so the song I'm choosing is called Polaroids. It's from Sean Colvin's second album, which is called Fat City, which um, what we were just talking about in terms of digging the album out, I, um, I played this song in the car uh, to my daughter saying, I can't pick, I don't know which song to pick for, 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 for my podcast with, uh, with Larry and Steve. And she told me off when I played this song. She was like, why have you never played me this before? It sounds like Joni Mitchell. I love it instantly. And in the space of a week, she's learned to play Polaroids. So that helped me seal the deal in terms of why I needed to choose this song because it's obviously got a new life already just from the experience of digging it out. And um, I saw Sean uh, opening for Mary Shapen Carpenter many years ago here in the UK. She did a little bit at the end where she asked people to shout out song names of, of what she want, what they wanted her to play. And I shouted Polaroids because it's in my top five Sean songs of all time. It's just the songwriting, her voice, everything together for me is, is just absolutely beautiful. Um, and I've, I think I've loved almost everything that she's done to varying degrees, but I don't think she has a bad record in her in her armory. So my choice is Sean Colvin. And if anyone's listening, that's Sean spelled S-H-A-W-N, Colvin. And the song is called Polaroids and it's from the Fat City album. And that was the one that I was going to leap over when you were talking about the Farmer's Daughter one, because I was going to sort of pull it up because I, I just, the one thing I knew more than anything else that was when we started this, Sean Colvin would be on your list. Um, I hope that's not disappointingly predictable. No, no, I it's not. Love, it, I'm I so, love her so much. I'm so, I'm so happy. And again, another person I discovered because of um, initially having a, I think it might have been some CD singles from the first album that were then, you know, 50p or something that I found. And then I fell in love with her and then got the record and got the next one. And yeah, again, love, incredible voice, great songwriting. And, and as you say, and that's really interesting what you say about listening to it now, it hasn't really dated. No, not at all. And, uh, and I didn't, I don't think I thought of her in the same breath as Joni until someone else said it. And then I'm listening back at times and I think, do you know what, in her higher register, I can hear it a lot, that I can hear it a little now at times. Yeah, definitely. I, I love Sean Colvin. Oh, good. I love her, love her, love her, love her. Um, I also don't think she gets enough respect as an interpreter. You know, one of uh, the best versions of this, the Paul Simon song, American Tune, is on Trevor's album. Um, which is just next level gorgeous because it captures um, the essence of what I think Paul Simon was trying to communicate, but also the essence of what it felt like to be an American um, at the time that it was released. I actually interviewed her for that record and, um, and fell in love because she is as darling and charming and 
self-effacing as you want her to be. Um, she has no idea of, of her power. Um, if she did, she'd be an even bigger star than she already is. Um, love her. Love that song. Yeah. Thumbs, thumbs, thumbs. Up, up, up. I love her. Love yeah, that song. Me too. Fabulous. Me too. And I will, again, add that you know, go back and now listen to a bunch of Sean Colvin. Now I knew that was that was coming up. That Me would, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Lee and I have exactly the same CD singles and extra tracks and all that stuff. There was some, yeah, back, I can picture those CD singles you're talking about, Steve, and they would have tracks from other of her albums, like yeah. you'd go back a bit and then you'd have nice live versions or covers that she hadn't put on record before. Just thinking, Larry, what you're saying about, you know, there's a song that sounds so American to me that I didn't really know until she covered it, which was Looking for the Heart of Saturday Night, which I, I always love it when you discover and are educated by your artists that you learn to love um, and choices of things that she's covered or sung that I wouldn't have necessarily known before, in all honesty, and then through her I found them. So I love that yeah. journey that an artist like Sean takes you on. Well, I, I, w- I remember so vividly um, the year she swept through the Grammys for Sunny Came Home and how it wasn't expected by by critics and pundits and all the people who supposedly know better. And there was even a little bit of a like, ugh, you know, the day after until everyone paused and listened to the record. And then there were pieces like, you know what? This is a great song because it was record of the year that year. This is a great song. This is a great album. This is... You know, she's just so underappreciated. Again, she's a huge star. You know, she never has to really work again. She's made so much money. But um, it's just remarkable to me how underappreciated she is at the same time. And that album that she she won all the Grammys for, by the way, way, is called A Few Small Repairs. I think that someone at the record company at Columbia must have been a fan because she had some very, very well-placed soundtrack songs on some huge soundtracks that did the business for her, I think. Um, very which... powerful management. Very powerful management. Oh, yeah. She was all over Dawson's Creek, I remember, as well. And the, yeah, that's, they couldn't get more 90s than yeah. that. But um, there was also, I'm sure... On... I think Peter Asher was her... Oh, really? I think Peter Asher was her manager at the time, yeah. Um, I want to say she had a song on Armageddon and Runaway Bride um, and one, one Fine Day, is it called the George Clooney and Michelle Pfeiffer movie? That kind of period, I think. I'm, I'm sure that's the song, I don't know why, from Polaroid. I'm sure I know that, that. I'm sure that's been on various things, which is really good. But no, and covered ex- by loads of people. Excellent choice, Lee. I was, I was hoping she'd pop up and she did. Um, fantastic. Larry, you're the last one from you. All right. Um, this there could only be this song as my as my number one all time hidden gem favorite of the nineties. It's from nineteen ninety one, and it comes attached with uh, to a memory. I remember the summer of nineteen ninety one, right before this single was released. It used to be one of the rituals in New York would be to go to the Sound Factory Club to hear either Junior Vasquez or Frankie Knuckles. This was during the Frankie Knuckles era. And um, there would be in the industry all kinds of buzz about what Frankie was going to play because everyone had a record. They were all trying to get him to play it. And he usually ignored them and just played what he, what he was working on. And uh, I was told to be there at exactly 3 a.m., not a second late. And uh, he was, uh, I was in the booth with him. He's like, okay, get downstairs. 
he was a girl, get your, get your pussy downstairs. That's exactly what he said to me. I remember it forever. And so I went downstairs and I found a spot on the dance floor and it was just like a random tribal track was playing and, it, and he faded it out. And all of a sudden you heard the click of the lights go off. It was, it was a click that he hit on the soundboard. The room went pitch black for exactly 10 seconds. And that's a long time. Count to 10. It's a long time. And all of a sudden you heard just a scream. I need release. And one big light like just exploded over the dance floor. And then you heard her say, I need release again. And another light came on. And then a third time, and then all of a sudden the beat kicked in. It was this gospel track called The Pressure by the Sounds of Blackness. It was July. It was New Music Seminar, actually. So maybe you were there, Steve. Um, 1991. And the crowd went, I mean, it was like, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced, nothing I'd ever still experienced because people were dancing like they were seeing the Lord. It was like crazy and it was hot. And the sound factory didn't have good air ventilation. It was like the floor got so wet that people were, I fell <laughs> twice. I mean, it was just, and he played it on loop twice. And then when it ended, the sound stopped, the audience broke into applause, and the night was over. And it was the most moving experience I've ever had in a club. And um, and it's another, you know, it's funny because a lot of the songs on my list for this uh, for this episode are songs I still listen to and have listened to consistently through the years from the 90s. And the pressure by the sounds of blackness, both the album version and the Frankie Knuckles remix, because they have been, he merged them together that night make for one of the most extraordinary experiences, even just to listen, that you'll ever have. Um, and it is, yeah, it's wow. And it should have been a hit. It, it did well on the gospel charts, but it didn't do anything. It, it was a big club record, obviously. But uh, but it was meant to be a big crossover record, and it didn't. So that's my, that's my pick. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, the story itself is extraordinary. I can't imagine what it would have been like to... To, to 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 have that moment of like ten seconds of nothing and that voice, and that was Anne. I mean, do you know the song? Yeah, what oh Anne Nesby? Anne Nesby, yeah. I mean, I've absolutely yeah, know. So I you mean, know the song? Oh my gosh! Well, I, I mean, so firstly, optimistic was so close to coming into my picks for this, but that whole album. I mean, that is absolutely. I mean, I remember again A and M sending out the uh, the promos and stuff for it. And just, it was the benchmark by, it was the beginning of so much of that stuff. It was, you know, the precursor to pre, uh, to um, Peace in the Valley. It was, you know, gospel house, really. Um, and, and just, and actually, even down to things like, you know, the baseline on the Frankie's version, which is so simple. But um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all the sampled vocals and, and everything. Yeah, just, just and, stunning. And, just and stunning. of course, let's just, the two people that we haven't mentioned are Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were responsible for that who whole record. created the track with them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, come on. I love a gospel choir. You know me, Larry. I, well, it's true. <laughs> it's true. I'm wondering if you were there. Were you, you, you weren't there. Were you there? Were was you there 19, for that new music seminar? What, it was when 91. is the pressure? 91. Yeah, it was. 
Yeah, yeah. I was Maybe you were there that night. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was around, again, it's sort of Limelight Sound Factory, which David and I were doing doing the rounds then and trying to kind of soak up as much because it was the very beginning of Brothers in Rhythm and, you know, David and Frankie and and um, and Clubbers and Cole were our heroes. So we went to just soak yeah. up as much of it as possible. I, don't, I wasn't there for that exact moment, for sure, and I wish I had been. But, um, oh, it's remember, just the most heavenly moment ever. Yeah, no. Heavenly. Absolutely, and um, and it and it really it really enforced you know so many people uh, over the years less so now but back in my day back in my day called the club their church yeah and it really enforced that notion that you could have the same kind of spiritual revitalization in a club on the dance floor with the right DJ that you would get if you were a church goer and what's really Fantastic! Now is that that mantle has been picked up by a, a truly incredible act called the House Gospel Choir, who go out yes. and not only release their own songs, but they actually would do the pressure as part of their set. And it is a full gospel choir singing all of that stuff. And you know, and I think so many of those. Well, I mean, Limelight was actually a church, but I mean, so many of those people, so many of those things are deemed as religious experiences. Um, I'm guessing Sounds of Blackness was very much on your radar, Lee. Yes. And so <laughs> what I would say is Larry is such a scene stealer. And I'm quite sure, Steve, if we think hard enough, we have stories just as fun as exciting at Tots in Southend or Dukes in Chelmsford, if we think about it. But let's not share them because we don't want to upstage the Queen. <laughs> what, I would, what I would add, and I don't know if you've experienced this yet, Larry, in your time in the UK, but I actually picked this album up bizarrely, a month ago for a pound at a good old-fashioned car boot sale. Have you experienced the car boot sale experience I have yet? Not, I have not yet, but I, obviously I know of them. I'm married to a Welshie, but... So you, fabulous. It, you, you can get a good bargain at a car boot sale, especially when people you, have no idea what they've got. Fantastic. And I so got it for a pound. And brilliant condition, yeah. Fabulous. How purchase. wonderful. I, I love know. that. So you know the record. Yeah, I yes. love it. Yay. Absolutely, yeah. I just can't, we're just sad because we can't compete with your big stories, that's all. But, oh, but that's why you're here. You're, you're, you're the queen and we are just happy to be in, <laughs> in your royal presence. Just, just mildly fanning from the side and occasionally, <laughs> occasionally feeding a grape. Fanning and fangirling. Both. Yeah, I think that's right. I feel that most of my stories about um, Tots and Zero Six really don't have a, you know, they're more about um, how, like, the flavour of the smoke that was in the smoke machine. That's normally more, you know. There was, a, I do remember at one point that there was a particularly sickly one that was pina colada flavour, and I wasn't quite sure how they did that um, or, <laughs> or who had decided it. But, I mean, we did, we did have moments. I do, I, I have a feeling... And, uh, do you know, Tony Prince would be the, the best person to... Uh, I'm sure Sounds of Blackness once did the DMC DJ convention, possibly even the awards, when we did the awards at the Royal Albert Hall when James Brown was there. I have a feeling... That I know Jammer Lewis came over and because we used to... DMC used to give out dance music awards every year and it would be like best group. And we'd always have incredible people come over because the record labels are so good. So I'm de I definitely have seen Sounds of Blackness perform live. Um, and have kind of been in the room with them and in the room with um, with Jimmy and Terry. But yeah, really great choice. Really amazing choice. Um, okay, last one from me. I'm sort of going to stay in the same world of, as Larry is. 
the moment someone said 90s gem, I just, this is my first thing I always go to. I don't have a fun story about it, but, um, and also it's not a song that is uh, so hidden that people will be like, oh, you know, that, that I, I would need to go and investigate it. But to me as a producer and as a writer and, 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 and someone that loves pop music, I, I love event songs. I love songs that start as nothing, end as everything. Um, and so much of it is, is within the arrangement of the song and you go on a total journey. Um, and so much of that is to do with one of its writers, which was Prince, who was very well known for doing this kind of stuff. Um, but when he collaborated with a female singer who'd had a couple of hits, this was not as anywhere near as big a hit as people think, considering the, the strength of the title and the strength of what came from it. Um, but I, if I want to remember a first time, I do remember the first time I ever heard this song and I was floored beyond belief and my jaw was on the floor in the same way as it was in the 80s with Oh Father by Madonna. Um, so my last and final choice is Love Thy Will Be Done by Martika. I've lost Larry again. He's gone. <laughs> oh my God. I, I've, I was just I've gone with him. I've, I'm with him. I've just, I've been listening. I was just listening to that record three days ago. That's a religious experience. It really is. I mean, she, yeah. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that record. It's, it's the definition of perfection. Every note, every syllable, every I mean, there's it's it's without flaw, and she never made a better record after that. And she's she's making records now, and they're dog dog rough. Um, but uh, oh, just heavenly, heavenly. Yeah, I know. I I had to. It just immediately. It's my go, it's my go to. <laughs> What's going on with Lee over there? Lee's, Lee's, the Lee's reacting to dog rough. <laughs> 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 and then he choked on my tea oh no you don't want to do that um so obviously we don't choke love no no obviously um you're massively aware of that lee but i just wonder if you had a, a remembering kind of the first time you heard that song as you said that that's what struck me is the fact i do remember hearing it on the radio and being flawed and just i mean i loved prince already i'd loved Montique's previous album but it just felt like something else and i know we've talked about them on previous podcasts it felt very much like a wendy and lisa record a bit to me mm. um it had elements of that to it for obvious reasons mm. um and is definitely up there with one of uh, as one of my favorite Prince songs, as you say, with with a female vocalist involved, a bit like Sheena Easton's One Hundred and One. Those two sit really beautifully together for me. I have to say, I almost thought you were going to say my my other favorite Prince production for a woman, which was Eternity by Sheena Easton. Yeah, Hundred and One is the one for me. Which, which to me, Eternity eventually sowed the seeds in his brain. Or love that will be done because they have a very similar approach. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 astonishing, and just the way that it builds in the vocal. Um, yeah, that, and it, and it is all around a very simple track, but just the way the vocals build, it's yeah, it's it's timeless. It's one of those songs that you, as you say, it's just pure perfection. So yeah. So um, well, you know that was that that was good. Just just before we. End up. I think we should do the the honourable mentions. I want to just 
wrap up with kind of, let, let's see, we sort of started at the beginning of the 90s and we know where you were, Lee, and you're at uni and you're doing this sort of stuff. Where did we, where were you at the end of the 90s when we thought all the, we had the millennium and the Y2K bug and everything was going to crash? Do you remember kind of what your world was looking like at the end of 99? Yeah, I was graduating. So I went to university a bit late as a mature student. So I was wrapping up uh, the end of my uni days a bit belatedly. Um, so that's a complete blur, to be perfectly frank. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember where you were on New Year's Eve 1999? I don't. Ah. I truly don't. I have absolutely no idea where I was. Larry, were you at the end of 99? Were you still at Billboard? I can't remember. Yeah, at the end of at the uh, end of the nineties, we were trying to pretend we weren't taking the whole the world is going to crash at the start of the new millennium. So we were backing everything up in our offices and on our computers, um, but saying it's not going to happen. And obviously, it didn't. But we didn't want to take any chances. So I remember it vividly. And a bunch of us are at that time. Our offices were still in Times Square, with a brilliant view of mm, the, you know, the famed ball dropping. So a bunch of us just stayed there, and there was a big MTV New Millennium party uh, down a few floors down. So yeah, that's what I did. We watched the ball drop at from the bill the billboard windows, and then we got drunk off of MTV's booze. That's that good. Was. That's that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I remember here we were very much, everyone was thinking it was going to be the end of the world and all the computers were going to stop and everyone should just kind of go nuts. So uh, I do think, as far as I'm told, that people have reminded me of, because I don't necessarily know if I remember it wildly well myself, that um, I was at a Renaissance party with Dave DJing um, somewhere in the UK on New Year's Eve 1999 and of course the computers didn't crash and it didn't all you know go wrong but had that have happened I would have had no recollection of it anyway so it was you know it was fun and <laughs> you know cl- club I, I'm, I'm not known I was never known as being a clubber but if I if I ever needed to be guaranteed an amazing night Renaissance would always deliver it for me so I do remember doing that and of, and of course it was sort of the end of Brothers in Rhythm for us. We'd become tired of what we were doing and I wanted to make pop records and David wanted to make club records and dub records. Um, but we went out with a really nice bang. We went out with a remix of Staring at the Sun by U2. So we ended on a high, um, wow. even though there were a few very suspect remixes, a few before then that should really never have happened. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I was. We've got a couple of, let's do a couple of honourable mentions, Lee. I've got, I'm going to rattle through mine because I felt so torn and I'm just going to watch your faces to see what happens when I say them. So I'm going to say Rebecca Tornquist and I do. Uh, Patty Rothberg, Between the One and the Nine, which is a very New York record. I'm expecting Larry to know. Um, Soul Family Sensation, I don't even know if I should call you Baby. Susan Ashton, You Move Me and Bachelor Girl, Buses and Trains. And my final song, which I really want to pick, was Pebbles and Sherelle, the title track to her second album, Always. What have I said now? No, it's just such a new Jack Swing kind of record. I love that song. I love Pebbles. Did you say Pebbles, right? The, the, always, the title the track from a second Pebbles. album is the most beautiful, beautiful song. It should have been a huge hit. Duet with Sherelle. She was at, she was at the, the first DMC, the one of the first DMC conventions I went to with Mercedes Boy. And oh, oh my God, wow. I fell in love with her. What yeah. a, yeah, yeah. So, Larry, can I just just mention again? Do you not know the Patty Rothberg between the one and the nine record? 
I don't know that one. <gasps> wow, okay. I don't. But I'll be looking it up. All right. I, got, I, I know, good, I'm sorry. That was a good little list to rattle off. Okay, Larry, have you got a list to Thank rattle you. off? Or have you got just a couple? Bus, buses, and, buses and Trains was, was, was the shit, though. I love that record. Okay. Uh, and very quickly, um, I almost put Baby Wants to Ride by Jamie Principal. Oh, uh, man. Deep, uh, deep original Chicago club music. Tracks. Um, yeah, yeah. And there was a brilliant mix done by Frankie. Yeah, the origins of Acid House kind of everything. Oh, yeah, that's a podcast in itself. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. And then uh, Some Lovin', the Peter Rohoffer remix, Peter Rohoffer RIP. Club 69. With Christine W. And, yeah, uh, and Merck, the Merck Boys. One of the best, uh, just full-on pop house anthems you've ever heard, and "Sweet Harmony" by the Beloved. Yes, for a little, for a little uh, British uh, electro pop. Yeah, really good choices. Um, I'll I'll sort of rattle through a few that kind of came in. Um, that was very close to. I, we mentioned them earlier, but um, Wilson Phillips had an incredible uh, song called "You Won't See Me Cry." That wasn't a massive hit, but I adore. Um, there's a, a Jane Child song called Don't Want to Fall in Love. Um, that was a monster. Um, and I loved, uh, I was a huge, uh, R&B sort of fan, obviously. And I thought one, probably the one that I would pick from that is a song called If You Love Me by Brownstone, which was, uh, the, the epitome of that gospel thing. Um, I'm amazed none of us said it. I thought me, me or Lee might do, but I would say Mazzy Star Fade Into You. Um, feels very much like that uh and and then the last one which i i was going to go for and i didn't know if lee would but i gotta say can't say goodbye by miss kim wilde is uh at the very beginning of the 90s but that song orchestrated by richard niles um still jackie graham on backing, jackie graham on backing vocals boy that's a song so the one i thought that you might mention when we were talking about oh, yeah. Clive Griffin was um, Joe Roberts and Lover. Oh, Lover. Joe Roberts, oh. yes. Oh, oh, oh we're all getting, now we've all got And now we've all got envy now because we know that we should have all picked that. Uh, now, no, I'm just remembering his, his photos. Oh, right, you're just... Uh, it's the hair, I'm right? sorry. It's the hair, isn't it, Larry? <laughs> um, it's, been, it's been a delight. There you go. That's a nice little... With lots of E's in it. Yes, yeah, well, like. speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know that's what happened on a nice Wednesday afternoon where you live. Um, thank you again. I think there were some great choices. There's certainly, there's songs. It's lovely when we pick things that each of us are going to go, yep, I'm going to go and listen to that. Either to remind ourselves or to, that we, we all think that we know all the same records, but actually we don't. And it's wonderful to kind of, do this and pick them. No, it's the best part. Um, and I'm sure other people will, will pick their favourites and, and, and what a great, incredible decade it was. Um, and, uh, and who knows, we may, we may move to the next one. The weird one about the, ne the next one decade is because you've got the 80s and the 90s, then you've got the noughties, but then the noughties goes on for like 20s, 20,000, 2000, 2010. So we've got to think of a, think of a name for 20, 2000 to 2010. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> um, have a lovely afternoon, gentlemen, and thank you so much for your time and your incredible 
choices of music uh just to wrap up you can find lee's incredible music blog teases and dares uh online um uh, and on Instagram and everywhere where you'll find the most incredible new music. Um, you can find Larry on all the socials as, as Larry Flick and his incredible new music moves playlist, um, which features the best in new music. And believe me, he delves very deep to find the diamonds in a lot of rough um, and promote them. And, uh, a few other other exciting things coming up from Vero, I'm sure that I know about that I'm not allowed to talk about. But maybe when you can talk about them, Larry, you you can share them on here. I know. Absolutely, I can't wait. Yeah, brilliant. All right, thank you very much, chaps, and I will see you soon. <laughs>